Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. vehicle is connected in a way that it really has never been in the previous hundred years of the the first hundred years of the vehicle. Now it's got Wi-Fi hotspots, it's got satellite radio, it's got Bluetooth, it's got cellular signals coming into it. It's really very, very connected. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for the In the Mix series at Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was Christy Fosey. Director of Cybersecurity at Aptiv, a global technology company in the mobility industry, talking about the connectivity now built into the cars we all drive. In our discussion, she talks about the efforts to create cybersecure vehicles to avoid not only individual problems, but in worst-case scenarios, broader concerns about vehicles being hacked and weaponized. It's a strange new world. Christy Fosey, thank you for joining us today on Horsepower to Hyperloops. Very interested to learn about cybersecurity, particularly as it relates to the automotive industry, because cars have changed so much. They're more computers than cars. So cybersecurity comes into play. It's kind of a unique space. Tell us a little bit about where you are now at Aptiv and what your role is and educate us about cybersecurity in uh, vehicles. Absolutely. So, hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Christy Fosey, I'm Director of Cybersecurity at Aptiv, and I have responsibility for the global product cybersecurity team. So, anything on vehicle cybersecurity related. And our job function really is to make sure that the products that we're selling to our OEM customers are as safe and secure as they can be when they go into production, and then supporting them throughout that product development lifecycle until that vehicle is off the road and has been decommissioned. And that's really a big change for the auto industry where we're used to developing a product and shipping it out. And then those designs get put on a shelf somewhere and we move on to the next one. And now we're looking back and, you know, the software defined vehicle and the cybersecurity implications of having a connected and autonomous vehicle, those implications extend well beyond that first, you know, production launch. Well, it still is kind of hard to imagine until you really get into it. First of all, tell me about Aptiv. What is Aptiv? Tell me about that company. Aptiv is a tier one automotive supplier. We came out of the Delphi heritage. They really spun off their powertrain division. And Aptiv is the focus area of really the advanced electronics division of automotive, right? So we're focused on autonomous vehicles. We're focused on infotainment and the smart vehicle architecture, the, the really the future state of where the auto industry is going. So that's where obviously cybersecurity comes into, into smart uh, components. Give me some more specifics. I, I'm still used to the idea of, you know, you make a car and there you go, but they're connected vehicles now, they're computers. What is a feature, what is an area where, cybersecurity comes into play. Why is it necessary? The vehicle is connected in a way that it really has never been in the previous hundred years of the, the first hundred years of the vehicle. Now it's got 
Wi-Fi hotspots. It's got satellite radio. It's got Bluetooth. It's got cellular signals coming into it. It's really very, very connected. Even things from your tire pressure monitor sensors are a connected device now. They communicate over RF, right? Remote key fobs. There's lots of different signals coming into your vehicle and, and your vehicle is making decisions based on. And as the, as the vehicle becomes more and more connected, both through autonomy and through driver enhancement features, right? So, you know, we bring in our phones and additional connectivity that comes along with that. But now, you know, the future of the vehicle is also going to be communicating to stop signs and stoplights and pedestrians, and it's going to be making decisions to brake or accelerate or move or change lanes based on these other input signals that are coming into the vehicle, not just what the driver is seeing and experiencing. So what would be a situation that cybersecurity protection, if that's the right term, would stop? What's the danger? Where could this be dangerous to me as a driver? In 2015, two security researchers did a demonstration of what could be done. And they, at that time, they did a demonstration on the Jeep Cherokee, but they took a wired reporter, put him in the driver's seat of the Jeep, and were able to take command and control of the vehicle from their laptop in their living room while the reporter was driving down the expressway. And really, that's your worst case scenario. That was really early stages for a connected vehicle when that happened. Certainly not possible to do that, certainly not with that level of capability today. That's obviously your worst case, right, is some severe safety consequence associated with remote takeover of your vehicle. I see a James Bond opening where James is driving his Aston Martin and Spectre or somebody takes control and drives it back to Spectre headquarters with Bond in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's (laughs) there's plenty of uh, Hollywood fodder here for sure. And the Fast and Furious 8 movie, I think, had a cyber element to it where the the hacker was able to uh, take command of the vehicles and drive them off a parking deck and cause mass chaos. And, you know, I think there's a recent study that someone did in New York City. If you can disable, it's a small number, maybe like 10 vehicles at strategic locations throughout the city, you can basically shut the whole city down, right? Because you're blocking major roadways and thoroughfares and stuff. And so there's a there's a huge, you know, like nation state terrorist level element associated with if you were able to like weaponize a vehicle, right? If you think of suicide Maybe. bombers and those types of things that that we've seen in the, around the globe, unfortunately, in the last two decades, you know, the the vehicle can do that, you know, potentially without a driver. But that's really, you know, worst case, that's not, you know, really realistic for the future. That's really sophisticated technology. So if you back off of worst case scenario and more mundane types of issues, what are you guarding against? Is it mistakes or is it still some level of manipulation from outside? What is it that you're protecting against and what features of the car are you working on most specifically? Give me some examples. Yeah, I think one of the kind of the stranger elements of cybersecurity is compared to, you know, the traditional automotive mindset where you're worried about a defect in the way that you designed it, right? Cybersecurity is dynamic in the sense that you're defending against an adversary who is attempting to achieve some sort of malicious harm against you, either by getting access to your data or or, like we're talking about taking command and control of the vehicle. And so it's really, it's a a different mind set shift from where we think of traditionally when we think of how we want to design to prevent this from happening, because it's not something that we can just design it once and leave it. 
it's has to be continuous and reactionary and proactive to be able to prevent these types of things from happening. And really what we're looking at is a philosophy that's pretty well understood called defense in depth. And if you think of, you know, like a security onion around the vehicle, as you get further and further remote, you want to make sure all those connectivity points from long range are really well protected and locked down that other people can't push out over the air updates onto your vehicle that don't go through your controlled infrastructure and are not authenticated and validated by the OEM. And then you get into short range, right? And making sure that your Bluetooth is locked down and that you can't gain access to data that might be stored on your infotainment system or your radio through your phone pairing, right? And gain access to your contact lists or some other information that might be stored on there. And then bring it in again of your direct physical access, right? So you have your OBD2 diagnostic ports, you have your USB ports, making sure that those are locked down and that you can't you know, convert or plug in a keyboard into your infotainment system to be able to somehow manipulate that software, that those types of devices are blocked and that you can only use it for its intended means. And then on the vehicle network and making sure that those safety controls are really well protected and locked down and really just kind of continue to build further and further in until you get down to even the microchip level and how we're storing data and how we're identifying areas that have more criticality and making sure that those are really locked down so that you can't do the types of things that happen in movies, right? And these these horrible scenarios that we've been talking about. So you're talking about brakes, steering, all the critical elements of the car, along with a lot of other pieces. Could somebody get through the car access to my phone or computer data if they're connected? Normally, when you connect your phone to your vehicle, there's a certain exchange of data, right, that comes into the vehicle. And that generally is your phone contacts list, right? So that from your infotainment touchscreen, you can then make calls or read text messages, that type of thing. And really, we're putting a lot of security protections in place, one, to limit that ability to exchange information back out to your phone from the vehicle, but also that that data is not stored long term. But you know, if you if you go into any rental car and you look at paired devices, you'll see Tim's phone, Christy's phone, the last oh, yeah. seven people that have driven that vehicle. And so some of it is, you know, teaching the public about cyber hygiene and making sure that make sure they understand that that data still exists out there. But right now, a lot of that data is pretty innocuous, right? It's it's your contact list. It really depends on if you store sensitive data in that. And now it's now it's being stored on that vehicle. Wow. There's a term I've never heard of, cyber hygiene. <laughs> that's that's yeah. pretty wild. Well, now you, you were talking about something which is, is, is maybe not directly cyber related, but strikes me as really interesting. And you've got to have a handle on it because there will be a cyber aspect to it or cyber security aspect to it. And that is you're talking about you're talking about in the future, and I think the future is probably already here, the car will be communicating with stop signs and other external elements. Where is that going? Talk to me a little bit about that, because you've got to be thinking about that as cybersecurity issues will come into play, right? Absolutely. You know, so that that future state, we call it V to X, vehicle to everything. So it's not just vehicle to pedestrian or vehicle to infrastructure or, you know, vehicle to whatever else. It's it's all encompassing of whatever that future state could look like. 
you know, there's scenarios in the future that have been proposed of having your vehicle, you know, pay for your gas without you having to use your credit card. That financial exchange happens remotely over the air, you know, by close proximity of your vehicle to the pump or whatever. And so making sure that all these communications that are happening from your vehicle are secure and making sure that if your vehicle especially is making what we're talking about, you know, steering, braking, acceleration decisions based on that data coming in, making sure that that is coming from a valid source and that it's been authenticated and it has great data integrity. And so you're not making vehicle decisions based on, you know, someone blasting out a a signal that's telling everybody to, you know, shift one lane to the left and one lane to the right and they all, you know, merge and cross together, right? So making sure that all that data exchange is, is good and valid before the vehicle makes a decision. Are the roadways becoming smart? Oh, yeah. 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 There's a new smart vehicle infrastructure that's coming up. And, and, you know, state of Michigan really is trying to pioneer it through Governor Gretchen Whitmer has made some big investments to make the first smart vehicle corridor, I think, goes between like Detroit and Ypsilanti area to build out this type of communication so that the auto industry, especially in Detroit, we have a basically a live test environment that we can start to leverage and use outside wow. of areas like M City at University of Michigan. I know Kettering University also has made some investments in their autonomous vehicle test track. Right. And then the old Willow Run facility, the American Center for Mobility also. Right. Yeah. Two questions. Are there financial I mean, it strikes me that there's got to be, if the car is going to communicate with the gas pump or perhaps toll booths or anything else, mm -hmm. there's got to be some financial information connection to your bank or whatever so it can access those funds. Is that right? Absolutely. And fortunately, we're in a position where the automotive industry can be a fast follower in that type of technology. So we can let the finance industry and the finance security experts lead that initiative and those charges. And so we can really minimize our security risk with storing that type of sensitive information on our vehicle. So maybe it's tokenized or something else that's really well protected, where even if you got direct access to it, it wouldn't really provide any financial gain or, or benefit. What about tracking? Are automobiles trackable? I mean, they're, I'm sure they're trackable, but are they routinely, as a matter of course, trackable as it goes in? Is that a cybersecurity issue? Well, GPS is considered to be personally identifiable information, PII, and uh -huh. it's considered sensitive. And so certainly that's data that we want to make sure is being protected and not openly broadcast off the vehicle with an identity that pulls it right back to, oh, that's where Tim's car is today. And, right. um, I don't mind. I mean, I, I'm assuming on the GPS, something, the satellite knows where I am, but oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't want a lot of people tracking where I am. You know, well, yeah, and there's not a lot of value in that data to for like the OEM to broadcast that off. You're, there's no like, if you think of a, a movie operation center, you know, today there's no giant screen that shows where every you know OEM product is in the world on some yeah. screen. Right? That doesn't that doesn't mean anything to them where their vehicles are actually parked or physically. Right? That doesn't have any value. But there is scenarios where we want to make sure that that data is being protected and or erase or erasable. And those would be situations where, you know, like law enforcement go to sell their old police cars at auction. But we don't want to necessarily give away the history of where that police car has been, 
maybe they've met with sensitive assets, whatever that looks like. We want to make sure that that is, you know, properly eradicated. And so we're trying to put in better protections in place to make sure that that data that could be stored on the vehicle is being managed properly. What's the biggest challenge and thorn in your side? What's the hardest part of this, whether it be a a particular feature or envisioning things that you try to imagine? What's the biggest challenge in what you do? Honestly, it's really because it's such a like revolutionary step in the auto industry to have a connected vehicle that can do all this is getting the rest of that infrastructure that supports that to kind of catch up with that. And so some of the challenges that we have in automotive that don't exist in, say, other connected devices, IoT, or other traditional enterprise IT is a function of the way that the auto industry works. And some of that might be right to repair regulation, right, in the United States to allow anyone to be able to do work and maintenance on their vehicle and have access to advanced diagnostic tools. You know, that makes sense in some level, but now in the software defined vehicle, if anyone can, you know, download or upload any sort of software to their vehicle that isn't necessarily OEM approved or OEM authenticated, that can cause some challenges, right? Especially when you're talking about these autonomous vehicle calibrations and the way that your vehicle is making decisions. We want to make sure that that's being done safely and securely. And if you think about the traditional enterprise IT mindset, the first thing you do to protect your network is lock it down so that nobody has access to it. And under right to repair, that's not a viable option. It's it's everyone has access at some level. And so making sure that that infrastructure is supporting to make sure that that any kind of nefarious personnel are trying to get into access vehicles is really well protected. One of the other challenges we have, of course, is the life of the vehicle on the road, which is amazing from a vehicle reliability standpoint, you know, compared to where we were a couple decades ago. But from a cybersecurity perspective, it's quite challenging because you're trying to protect technology that is many generations old, essentially. So if you look at the current average life of a vehicle on the road today in the United States, is somewhere around 11 to 12 years. So if you go back in time, looking at today, if you go back in time 11 to 12 years ago, plus a three-year average automotive development life cycle, you're looking at the same time period that the first generation iPhone went onto the market. And if you were trying to use that technology today as an individual on your mobile device, it's obsolete. And it hasn't been supported by that manufacturer for a decade. It's a unique challenge to the auto industry is the longevity of these products on the market and our requirement, of course, to continue to support them. Because as painful as it is to buy a new you know, smartphone every two years for $1,000, it would be way more painful to buy a new $50,000 vehicle every two years when that technology becomes obsolete. So you're having to continue to try to figure out ways to support this technology, this older or increasingly older technology from a, here we go, cyber hygiene point of view, right? Yeah, right. Hey, there you go. Is there any risk when I take my car to the mechanic that he will be tampering with something, the cybersecurity? I mean, I suppose there's always that risk. If it's a horrible situation, he could, you know damage the brake lines or anything else. But I mean, from a cybersecurity standpoint, is that an issue which you worry about people's access to your vehicles? It is in the sense that, you know, anytime you have a a third party 
brought into the equation, there's always a risk associated with that. With what is their motivation and what is their means of what they're trying to accomplish? And what the industry has really done is try is change to secured software. So it's not like the days of being able to tune your engine and and write your own calibration file and flash it onto the vehicle. All that right. has to be signed by the manufacturer for the vehicle to even be able to read it. And so there's a lot of protections in place that prevent, you know, just general nefarious engagement with your vehicle just by having access to it. You really can only download OEM authorized software. There's protections in place from that. It's not any different, I would say, than general risk like you're talking about that you would, you know, cut your brake lines or something. Right. Well, I, I always try to be nice to my mechanic. I, I don't want them <laughs> to like sabotage my vehicle. This is all, how old. I mean, you mentioned the people in 2015 on an experimental basis that took over a vehicle. Is that how old this industry is? How old is cybersecurity in, in automotive vehicles as an industry or issue? I think it really depends actually by OEM, by manufacturer, right? I mean, the first kind of remote connectivity or off-board connectivity that you had on the vehicle was probably Bluetooth, right? And you're uh -huh. looking at maybe early 2000s, 2005, 2008 timeframe when that started to become more available and more mainstream. But again, that's like short range, right? And there's not a lot to do with that. It's pretty limited capability. And then, you know, GM with OnStar, they've had significant connectivity to their vehicle for many decades with that program. And so that really gives someone like GM a really big leg up against some of their competitors because they've been working in this environment, this largely connected vehicle environment for, you know, quite a bit longer than some others. Just out of curiosity, does anybody build anymore a non-connected, old-fashioned, just mechanical engine, wheels, steering wheel car anymore? Does that exist even? Not really, you know. I mean, some of like the cellular connectivity and certainly like satellite radio and stuff, those are all opt-in, you know, additional things right. you have to pay for as a consumer. You know, setting up your Wi-Fi hotspot on your vehicle, that's all things that it's up to the consumer to define. But a lot of this short-range stuff, you know, like all vehicles pretty much today have an RF key fob. You really don't find vehicles that only have a hard key anymore, right? right? Or right. higher pressure monitor systems also over RF. Most vehicles still have Bluetooth. And, and so you still get a lot of the short range, even if you wanted to eliminate some of those longer range connectivity options. I sort of miss the days when I, you know, I could take my wood tennis racket and throw it into my Yugo and play my eight track and off I'd go. But I mean, you know, I'm dating, I, I'm dating myself. Well, so Christy, tell me how many Christy Fozies are there out there? And by the way, we are talking with Christy Fozzi, who is a cybersecurity expert and executive with Aptiv and fascinating to learn about a lot of things that maybe a lot of people don't consider about the cybersecurity of their vehicle. How big is this industry, Christy? It's certainly a growing space, you know, and it's it's something that we're learning more and more about every day. And as we're adding more of these driver enhancement features that come with a lot more connectivity, we're realizing that we need to continue to staff up to support these, especially these longer life cycles of these vehicles. But you're seeing it across the board. I mean, every OEM has a dedicated product cybersecurity team most of the tier ones have a dedicated product cybersecurity team or experts that exist on their on their basis. And really, we're trying to trickle that also down through the entire supply chain 
you know, microchip manufacturers have always been really good at security. So they've got a pretty good foothold there. But some of these other products, you know, small sensors and switches and things that have really been, you know, mostly cost-driven their entire existence are now having to start to add some of these security elements into it just to make sure that, like we're talking about this whole defense in depth, that we're protected across that entire linkage, right? Because any hacker would go after whatever that, you know, weakness in the chain is, and we want to make sure that those are closed up as best we can. But it's a growing area. You know, a lot of teams are doubling year over year to, to bring in more security talent. And because automotive cybersecurity and even embedded security in general is relatively new, a lot of the academic institutions really haven't caught up to it yet. You really can't, you can't get a degree in automotive cybersecurity today with the exception of a few maybe master's programs that are just now emerging. And so what we've had to do is we've taken, you know, talent out of a cybersecurity career and we've taught them automotive and we've taken people out of automotive and, and taught them cybersecurity. And we've created this blended team with a couple of different perspectives and a lot of different backgrounds to try to build up this secure network of uh, engineers that can protect our products. So it sounds like if you're a student and interested in this area, it's a good place to go because there's going to be more and more jobs in the future. Absolutely. And if you go on to, you know, NIST and NICE and some of these other national institutes that look at cybersecurity careers, and and they're really very expansive and, and detailed in the amount of cybersecurity opportunities, right? As, as everything becomes connected, everything has to be protected. And so as career in cybersecurity in general right now is a really great place to be, is great growth opportunities and certainly in automotive to have really specific focused cybersecurity expertise is a really, really valuable skill set today. Well, talking about students, I'm curious how you got from Kettering to here. Where did you start in terms of your major and your work at Kettering? And give us a little bit about your journey. I started as a mechanical engineer, and then I added an electrical engineering degree about halfway through when I was at Kettering. So I actually am a suicide major, an M-E-double-E. I did my co-op at Magna and Tier, and I worked on the Chrysler minivan stow-and-go seat. That was my first job. So where did you go from there? How did you gravitate into cybersecurity? Having a dual mechanical electrical engineering degree made me, I guess, somewhat unique. <laughs> Not a lot of those out in the wild. And so I actually got recruited by the CIA out of Kettering. And so I went over to Langley and joined that team and did that for about four or five years right after school. And that was really my first exposure to operations and this, this exciting world of connectivity and cyber. Well, I think you mentioned to me at one time you were even involved in black ops or something. Yeah, so originally I was recruited in to work on some biometrics issues, which is always pretty fascinating. I guess I did a pretty good job there, and I got pulled into the supporting the Black Ops teams for the last three years that I was there. Don't tell me anything that you'll have to arrange to have me shot later. So you were at, at the CIA, and then so you got drawn into really, was that cybersecurity, essentially? Yeah, yep. I left the agency in 2011-12 uh, timeframe, right after we eliminated the number one terrorist target in the world, bin Laden, at that time. And I was kind of felt like that was like career peak, you know, like, what do you do after that? That's a good time to leave. <laughs> 
And so I came back to Detroit and back to automotive. And I was working at Mala Powertrain as a program manager on next generation internal combustion engine technology, which when I left the black ops community, this is, I always find this story fascinating. I told the team like, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing back in Detroit. And, you know, I'm in a room of all like spec ops guys, black, you know, all the seals and everybody. And their reaction back was, oh my God, that is so cool. <laughs> And I'm thinking, like, they don't really make a lot of movies about, like, dyno testing. That's not really, like, as peak as, you know, the stuff you guys work on. But, you know, the grass is always greener, you know. So even when it sounds really cool and sexy to say I worked at the CIA, apparently there's a lot of people at the CIA who are thinking, like, hey, Detroit Automotive, that sounds pretty wicked awesome. Well, now, now I have to ask, and you may not be able to tell me, were you involved in some activity that involved terrorist prevention? Let's put it that way. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you in, 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 that, in that case. What was your path before you, once you left there and on your way to Aptiv, what sort of path did you follow and what sort of things did you work on in the cybersecurity arena? So after the Jeep was hacked in 2015, I got recruited into FCA at that time, really because it was a combination of my automotive background and my experience with the CIA. So it was a really good blend of product cybersecurity, right? So that was still a kind of an emerging space for the auto industry. And it was a really good opportunity to get involved there. And so I helped FCA set up their, their global governance and how they develop vehicles and do security by design and their incident response processes and those types of things. And then I moved on to Mitsubishi Electric, the tier one supplier, and did very similar work there, setting up their initial product cybersecurity team and it's kind of its infrastructure and then joined Aptive last year. So I've been at Aptive just over a year and I'm really enjoying it so far. So you're really not working on vehicles as much as you're working on components. Yes. Yep. Very and true. Now I'm aware that Aptive has a very strong push, as a lot of companies do today, thankfully, in sustainability. Is there any overlap between sustainability and cybersecurity? I think it goes back to that, you know, longevity of the product and really thinking long-term about what these products are going to do in their environment and what is our obligations there. And that really means protecting these products, not only from the first time they go into production, but all the way through that extended life cycle and, you know, 20, 25 years past end of life for somebody or past end of serial production for some of these products is their definition of end of life. And so making sure that we're there and we're set up to be able to support that long-term vision. So it seems to me that as products get more connected, more sophisticated and components and vehicles, they'll just be an endless and unimaginable wealth of things to work on in this arena over the next three, five, 10 years. Would that be right? Absolutely. And really the, where the industry is at today on the automotive side in terms of specific automotive cybersecurity risk is relatively low in terms of activity. But the pros and cons of that is that we've also brought in common technologies from other sectors, right? So we have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and USB and these existing protocols that are used in other devices that maybe be considered bigger targets and more interesting targets for the hacker community that we need to also adjust and respond to. And that's really where, the, where we're at in terms of our cybersecurity responsiveness. We're seeing very low, low engagement or interest from the hacker community to go specifically after vehicles. And that's really because what we're talking about is 
there's not a huge, you know, monetary gain for gaining access to a vehicle and, and it has to be really specific and targeted and, and, and you know what, it's really hard. Yeah. But I imagine there is some coordination between different cybersecurity elements from different products who are all working together. I would think there'd be a lot of coordination that has to be done in that regard. Yeah, I mean, the the hacker community, as an example, doesn't have these pesky things like IP restrictions, right? So they freely share all the information and the code that they write and they post it on Reddit and some dark web forums. And we monitor those and we look at those and we try to keep track of what, what is interesting and what the you know community is looking at. But on the more pro, the other proactive side of that is we need to be doing that as an automotive community. And we use organizations like the Automotive ISAC, which is Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And there are, I think, 50 or 60 automotive companies that are now members of it, all of the major OEMs, most of the tier ones, a lot of the microchip suppliers. And we meet together and we share information regularly on threats that we're seeing against our products and things that we've experienced. You know, some of the automotive companies have been victim to ransomware in, in recent times. And so really sharing all that information so that we can learn from each other so that it doesn't happen, you know, prolifically across the industry that if, you know, an attack against one is an attack against all is a, is a common phrase that we use. And we, we really take that seriously and we don't compete on cybersecurity because there's so much commonality of these products. We, you know, we supply the same or similar products to multiple different OEM customers. And so it's in their best interest as well to make sure that, you know, we're all doing our very best and, and seeing, following the same best practices, right? It's really in everybody's best interest to work together on this. Absolutely. And that's a really unique space for the auto industry, which is really well known for being super, super competitive, right? And so even coming out of powertrain, right, where you're literally trying to like squeeze water from a stone and get that last, you know, percentage point fuel economy or, you know, soot reduction, whatever it might be to come into cyber where it's kind of an, a more open forum for sharing and exchanging information and ideas and what should we be doing and what's the best way to handle this. It's been a really exciting time to be in the auto industry, especially in the cybersecurity space. Well, thank you for sharing a lot of that because that's an aspect of the, of the automotive world that I, I certainly knew existed, but only vaguely and, and didn't really have an understanding of it. And now I, I'm seeing an opportunity that I can, you know, if my car ends up driving to Baskin Robbins, I can blame it on a cybersecurity failure and that it was taken over by evil people who, who made me go there rather than, you know. <laughs> and that I, will sound less like you have your tin hat on as we go further in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christy Fosey, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and for the work you're doing, basically to keep us all safe while we're driving around. Thank you for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. Really appreciate it. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.